from KQED. We are not talking about Raven Simone right now because I'm supposed to be a journalist and I need to remain out of it. Out of it and above and away from it. Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I am Carly. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The The Cooler, your weekly dose of pop culture commentary. Today we're talking about problematic childhood entertainment. And we're going to cap things off with a conversation with our friend and colleague Joshua Johnson about his new show, So Well Spoken, which is all about race and identity. And it's apparently controversial. We'll get into that. (laughs) But first up, Carly has some things to say about movies from our past. I knew we were going to be chatting to Joshua Johnson later on this episode. And he has this great show, So Well Spoken. If you haven't heard it, you're going to hear a lot about it later in this episode. But it really got me thinking about that horrible experience when you're watching TV and a film that you used to love as a child comes on and you watch it and you think, oh, I'm going to enjoy this so much. And then you think, oh my God, this film is so racist mm-hmm. or sexist or, sexist or yeah, misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic, any of the phobias, not arachnophobia. But it's <laughs> terrible because you feel like none of the movies you loved as a child are immune from this at all. And I was really thinking of, you know, this in relation to Sixteen Candles. That's a really fun film, right? It's lovely. It's got Molly Ringwald in. You watch it with 2015 eyes and this Asian character, I'm just going to say it, Long Duk Dong. You watch him with modern eyes and you think, I can't believe this was in a Hollywood movie that was widely released. But we all loved it. People loved it. But... How do we deal with pop culture that to 2015 eyes is totally problematic? What do you do? Do you put it in the bin? Do you say no one should really watch this anymore? Or do we say those were the times? Hmm. I don't have an answer. That's I would yeah. love to know what you guys think. I feel like I struggle with it, that movie in particular and others where there are those cringeworthy moments, whether it's a whole character or just a scene. We've talked on the show before about how I marathoned Friends recently. Yes, and you found a whole lot of tricky stuff in that. Yeah, and it was so many gay panic jokes and just like an aura of homophobia that was like friendly homophobia. Mm -hmm. And did I stop watching the series? No, but it definitely makes me think of it differently. And it says more about the time than the people creating it. I think it's just no one flagged that or changed that about that show because in those times gay people didn't have the kind of platform to speak on Mm -hmm. how those kinds of portrayals affect us and now with social media all of these groups who used to be disadvantaged or i mean still are but we now have twitter or facebook and we have some leverage to say our piece and hopefully change things so yeah going back to your question Sixteen Candles, I watch it. I feel weird about that character, but I just like keep going forward and I I try not to see it as black and white of like, okay, I can never watch this because of this yeah. one situation. So that's where I'm at, but I struggle and it depends on, on each film or mm-hmm. piece of music or whatever. Well, this is my question. Do we give that kind of popular entertainment a pass? You know, those were the times. It was the 80s. Everyone was racist and transphobic and misogynist. Do we say that or do we say no, F that? This was wrong at the time. And people actually knew that. 
and they didn't care because the people who were the butt of the jokes didn't have the platform, to your point, Mm -hmm. to make a fuss. And now they do. Is that the reason that we're suddenly so much more sensitive to this? Right. Like I say, I genuinely don't know the answer. What do you do with the battered VHS copy of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? <laughs> what do you do with that? I think it. I think it. I think these shows are a time capsule. I think they capture what the temperature was for our culture during that particular period. I think that's how I look at it. Whether or not we throw the baby out with the bathwater, I don't know because. If something offended me, I would want it completely taken off air, right? Mm-hmm. I think most of us feel like that, like, oh, my God, that's offensive. No one should ever see that. But then if we completely wipe out everything that we've done, that kind of throws away all the good parts, you know, the things that we've built on, um, the things that have influenced other TV shows and different culture. I think about In Living Color, which was like one of my favorite shows. And I, and I think a lot of people, when they talk about um, racism or when they talk about sexism or when they talk about all uh, like a whole spectrum of topics, they forget that even disadvantaged people can also do things that are offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember watching like episodes of In Living Color when they come on now and they had this segment called Guys on Film. This was like a reoccurring sketch. And it was basically like two guys who were gay and they were like flamboyant gay and the whole butt of the joke was just that they were gay and it was funny their gayness was yeah their gayness was like hilarious and so now as an adult I look back on it and I think like if I was like a young black boy and I was gay and I was watching this show one of the very few shows on television that was like highlighting african-american and and um comedians and and actors and i see that the butt of this joke is like oh they're gay it's funny haha it's a you know it's hilarious how would i feel You know, like I was a kid and I watched it and I was like, oh, this show is hilarious. But if I was a young black male, like how would that have influenced me? So you've got this piece of art that has really great things about it, but then really offensive things about it. So like, what do you take away from that? Do you erase it completely? Do you like, what do you do? That reminds me of this other conversation that's going on alongside this one, which is if an artist does something reprehensible and awful, are you able to separate that person from their art. Oh, it's such a tricky question. Hashtag Bill Cosby. Hashtag Chris Brown. Hashtag Justin Bieber. Hashtag we can go on for R. Kelly. Yeah. Roman friggin' Polanski. Like, what do you do about that one? One of your yeah. favorite your favorite artists did something so reprehensible in their past. Yes. I can see how if a new Woody Allen movie comes out, I'm not gonna go see it because it's putting money in his pocket. Mm. And I don't agree with that. But like you were saying, Roman Polanski. I love Rosemary's Baby. Do I never watch that again because he did something in 1977, which is awful. I was watching this TED Talk. And I do that sometimes. <laughs> Get you. Someone's got I'm so broad smart. Band. Okay. So there's this man named Shaka Senghor. He was a 19-year-old drug dealer, and he shot and killed someone. And then he went to jail for two decades and was put in solitary confinement, was considered one of the worst in the prison. But then he started reading books and found a mentor and, you know, reformed himself, came out and now was helping people that were like him not make the same mistakes he made. And he said at the end of his talk, what I'm asking today is that you envision a world where men and women aren't held hostage to their past, where misdeeds and mistakes don't define you for the rest of your life. And part of me wants to be empathetic to that. Like you're not your worst action in your Mm -hmm. life. So if you did something in 1977 and you are remorseful for it, what else can you do? Are you just you're just going to carry that mark forever and you're just dead to the world? 
I don't know if that's the answer. Whenever Gosh. I struggle with this question, I think Chris Brown. Oh. So I remember, like, I completely boycotted Chris. After the, what he did to Rihanna, I was yeah. like, done, can't listen to him anymore. And then I remember getting in the car, and every time I would hear, like, that collaboration, like, I don't know if it was, like, a year later or something like that, but they did a collaboration. It was too soon. <laughs> it was way too soon. And I was like, I won't, I can't, I won't. And then he just kept releasing music and releasing music and releasing music on the radio that I couldn't help but dance to. So then I was like, okay, I'm not buying his albums. I'll never buy his albums, but he makes damn good music. And for people who have been living under a rock for the past five years, we are, of course, referring to the fact that it's undisputed that Chris Brown beat the living hell out of his Mm -hmm. then-girlfriend, Rihanna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then, so the opposite spectrum is that I cannot listen to R. Kelly. I refuse to listen to R. Kelly. When he comes on the radio, I switch the station. So, I don't know. Is it chronological time times terribleness of deed? Is this what we're talking Ooh. about? Is there a formula? You've here? got a full-on equation going on. You're a mathematician okay. in the making. I'm not good at that kind of thing. Hey, so, you're not know. the only one that you can watch me. TED Talks. Oh. Let's just say that. Yes, R. Kelly. There's this interesting article on Vulture recently, and um, they were talking about, do you listen to R. Kelly's music? Can you? And mm. they quoted this guy, Jim Derogatis. Sorry, Jim. Um, who used to work at the Chicago Sun-Times and was a pop critic. He's saying that maybe we just don't care about underage women of color enough to blacklist R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. But Bill Cosby's different because it involves white women. Well, I think that you can get away with doing almost anything to anyone in this country as long as you pick the right person to do it to. Mm. And I'll say that. Bloop. <laughs> <laughs> so, with wonderful circularity, we've posed questions... No no answers. (laughs) (laughs) But what I do know is I can separate Justin Bieber from his new album because I don't like Justin Bieber or anything he does. He's a brat. He pees in buckets and eggs people's houses. (laughs) But his new album is fire. So is his reinvention effort working? I feel like he looks different. He he has like a whole different vibe going on. And then they released a penis picture and everyone's like, oh, okay, we're down. Okay. I missed that. All right. (laughs) We'll show you later. (laughs) (laughs) I will pass. Can we please not? (laughs) Today we are talking about race with our friend and colleague, Joshua Johnson, who is part of a new show out of KQED News called So Well Spoken. Welcome, Joshua. Thanks, Emmanuel. How's it going? We're so excited that we're all finally in the same room. We've been trying to work this out for a while. I know, right? Save the best for last. Aren't you sweet? Mm-hmm. Cue the mm-hmm. Vanessa Williams song. I know, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't have the rights. We don't. Right, right. We have no rights. Rewind it back. Rewind it back. Exactly. So, Joshua, for those who are not up on their KQED game like they should be, can you tell us what you do? I'm the morning newscaster. I do the Bay Area newscast at the top and bottom of the hour during our broadcasts of Morning Edition and our local weekday talk show forum with Michael Krasny. A lot of my friends who heard your interview with me on Forum about Kim Kardashian, people were surprised that Forum was covering Kim Kardashian and that they had someone in their ranks like you who could talk about Kim and NPR in such a knowledgeable way. You know, I we had this argument about Kim when the show came up because we wanted to try to book Kim Kardashian. Oh, I remember. Yes, you remember. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I thought it would be a great idea. I would love to interview Kim Kardashian for an hour. Yes. And there were some in the team whose names I won't call who <laughs> were not digging Shame the idea. Shame them. Shame no, them. No, no, no. No, no, because I have to look at these people in the eye. When so I do we, Jamidra. <laughs> right. And, and so we had a legitimate back and forth. And then we thought, well, why don't we just make that? The topic of a half hour of the show. And my contention was there is no subject that should be off limits 
to us. There is something about Kim Kardashian that is worth exploring, which is namely, she knows how to play the game. Don't hate the player. Kim Kardashian is just a player. But she is playing this game that Britney Spears kind of learned to play, Mm -hmm. that, you know, Madonna reinvented, and that Marilyn Monroe invented. Like, she's playing this game of this beautiful, sexy, savvy woman who uses her sex and her savvy to make a lot of money. That says nothing about her, and it says a lot about us. Mm -hmm. And I think that exploring what she did and having a chance to just pick her brain for an hour like how does Kim Kardashian Inc. work would be illuminating. But we got some of the nastiest calls. <laughs> oh, yes, oh my did. God. We got one woman from San Leandro who was just fuming. She, she couldn't believe that we were going to have this conversation. And I asked her, I was like, whoa, 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 wait. Do you mean to tell me that our relationship as your primary source of news and information is so fragile that you do not trust us to even attempt this conversation, you wouldn't listen for 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes, just to see where we went with it. And without thinking, she said, no. Nope. Oh. I was like, I right, click, next call, let's keep going. <laughs> I can't do nothing with that. That's so, okay, fine. So for people who don't know, can you back up and tell them how the Kim Kardashian conversation even came to be? It came to be because Kim Kardashian was a guest on NPR's weekend news comedy quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. People got very upset because they felt that a news organization like NPR should not be dealing in this kind of what they considered low pop culture. Never mind that Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is not produced by NPR News. Mm. It's produced by NPR and Chicago Public Media, but it's not a news program. It's an entertainment show. But people just got their feathers ruffled over whether or not Kim Kardashian even belongs (laughs) on public radio. In their defense... The roots of public radio are educational radio. The stations that were originally NPR, they began as ERN, the Educational Radio Network. And NPR was originally designed as a national interconnect to provide news and information to college stations. So there is a reason why people feel this way. We've evolved, but... Apparently, we've only evolved so far. So interesting that you you raised this because this is the reason that we're doing this podcast. You know, talking about the game of pop culture, there is no Kim Kardashian. There is no pop culture unless we're all playing. This is the reason this stuff exists. It's it's not like a whole nother planet of people who consume this stuff. It's I think, us. I think what bugs people about someone like Kim Kardashian is that she holds a mirror up to an aspect of America that seems lower than our highest aspirations. You know, we like to believe that we are this country that aims very high and plays to win and is this global exemplar. And in many ways, we are. But the same nation that gave us, you know, Jim Lehrer gave us Morton Downey Jr. And the same nation that gave us the Kennedy Center gave us Larry Flint's Hustler. And it's it, this, you know, it's this continuum. We are all the, we're a nation of 300 plus million people. So we can't just saw Kim Kardashian off the edge of the earth and pretend she never existed. You know, something gave rise to her and she will give rise to something else. Mm. And I think what people are really worried about is the something else. And you can go back even farther than Marilyn Monroe. I think that's this larger conversation about how women have used sex as a form of business equity. I mean, we're in San Francisco right now. San Francisco as a gold rush town was very, very male. There were very few women here. And you could go down by the whole Barbary Coast area Mm -hmm. to where there were peep shows. But the whole peep show in some cases was just a woman's shoe. You pay a dollar and a little trap door. I'm so not kidding. You pay a dollar, a dollar in gold rush days. 
and a little trap door opens, and it's just a woman's shoe, the ornate, with a high heel, and you just look at it, and they play some kind of music. Wow, 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 And you just look at it and think about the woman that might be in that shoe. She stick that pump out, she that's that all pump, you get, huh? She give you a little pump, and then she take a little back, and then <laughs> the door closes. And that was the whole peep show. So we created this whole environment for women to sell sex. You know, we talk about men selling women sex. That's, that has issues all its own. But women selling their own sexuality as a means of economic empowerment, that's something that we need to unpack. And if we can't have these conversations, we just kind of – we rob ourselves of the ability to view ourselves as we really are. And we just let kind of the TMZs of the world have the final say on what somebody's life means. So and that doesn't sit well with me. So what you're saying is, as a woman, I can be sold, but I can't sell myself. You know what? That would be the idea is that, well, I mean, burlesque dancers and and some of these women who have made themselves sex symbols did sell themselves in a way. They bucked a societal norm that says that you can control your sex appeal and your sexuality and make money as you as you see fit. And that, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Madonna, that Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. I mean, the, the examples of that, even Janet Jackson. With that thing that happened at the Super Bowl where she had boob gate six seven mm. eight boob. You know what? It, that yes. I'm not gonna shade her. She's trying to. She's got to make a comeback. Right hey, her now. new Go album ahead. is. I'm digging her new album. It's I'm unbreakable. Dig- oh, I love it. I've played the hell out of Burn It Up. Yes. I wish I could stop playing that damn song, and I can't. I'll get up in the morning, driving to work. It's like five a.m. I'm coming down the hill. I'm bleary eyed, and I put it on. I'm good to do the news after okay. that. <laughs> oh, I love it. To pivot a little bit and and to talk a little bit about your show, so well spoken. Do you think that this next Snapchat generation will be better at talking about race than we are? I think so. I think they're I think they're already better. I think it depends on more than just them. My education about race as a kid was facilitated by my mother. You know, she went to Florida A&M University, which is a historically black school in Tallahassee, Florida. She was on campus when Dr. King was assassinated, so she was in the middle of the rioting that happened at FAMU and across the hill at Florida State. She is a career educator, was. She just retired this year, so she steeped me in the information about race and class and culture and color. And she made sure that I grew up with an understanding of, like, black inventors. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I I kind of knew where things came from. Mm. So by the time I was ready... To speak for myself, I had a basis of information to to go on. Now, then it was easier. You know, she brought books home from the library or she would take me out to a community event and we would go together. It was a lot easier. Now, I don't think parents or not just parents, but I don't think that prior generations are as steeped in the way to communicate with today's generation as my mother was with me. I mean, Snapchat is just the latest iteration But how do you adapt these messages to videos that self-destruct? I think this generation will be better at talking about race if we can adapt what we know to speak to them. We have to find ways to speak to people where they are. And I worry about whether previous generations are up to that task. But hopefully So Well Spoken can be part of that. Well, tell us. For people who don't know, what is So Well Spoken and, and how did it come about? So Well Spoken came about after the rise of Black Lives Matter. We had a meeting and our executive editor, Holly Kernan, who's in charge of all of KQED News, said, we need to cover this. I want ideas. And so we large group brainstormed. I had the thought, 
kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way of doing a show for white people on how to talk to your black friends. And for those who don't know, it. who well, <laughs> cannot see you, do you identify as a colorless American, as Raven Simone would say, or oh, how do you identify, sir? Excuse me? <laughs> that is the appropriate response to Raven Simone. Raven Simone has identified herself as a colorless American, meaning that she doesn't affiliate, she doesn't identify as African American or any other, she doesn't identify with any racial group. Okay, so we finna move on. And we ain't talking about Raven Simone up in here. You said this would be a polite conversation. <laughs> we are not talking about Raven Simone right now because I'm supposed to be a journalist and I need to remain out of it. Out of it and above and away from it. Stay above. on the high road. Stay on the high road. Oh, Jesus. Keep me near the cross. Yes. All right. So you were asking me something else before the conversation got vulgar. Oh, so, so well spoken. Yeah, so well spoken. Thank you. How oh, it yeah. came Your about. Show. Why, oh, Lord. Raven Simone, her decide. powers to derail everything. <laughs> so I had, I had put forth this idea about, just kind of tongue-in-cheek, a guide for white people about how to talk to your black friends. Yeah. And so we kicked that around, and then the idea evolved, and it became clear that there are all these conduits to talk about these big racial issues like Ferguson and the Charleston church attack and all this other stuff. And then there's all this comedy. You know, there was Key and Peel and Another Round and all these other programs that take a very lighthearted look at race. But there's this gigantic space in the middle that doesn't get talked about. It's the 99.999% of interactions people have that happen in the elevator or in line at the supermarket or in traffic or at work or at home or at school or at church that most people will find themselves in. And no one was talking about those interactions. Hmm. I have a problem with talking about race once it rises to the level of Ferguson. Or now, you know, Corey Jones in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, near where I'm from. Or this matter in Minneapolis that's bubbling up right now. Right. We should be talking about it way before then. Yeah. You can't build the bridge when you're running to leap the chasm. It's mm-hmm. too late then. So So Well Spoken is an effort to try to build the bridge by talking about these everyday encounters with race that people tend to get into. What we've also found is that a lot of these encounters, A, are not purely black-white, and B, have principles that are larger than the encounter that we can universalize. We had a story from a woman, a black woman, who teaches at a school in San Jose, I think, and one of her white colleagues, a white guy, referred to her in some kind of joking context as uppity. Mm. It was bad enough that he said this. It was worse that her co-workers heard it, and they just came from everywhere. They just... And went all over him, and they just pounced on him. So she didn't even have the time to tell him how she felt because she had to triage the situation. She had to pull them off of him and help him lick his wounds before she could even speak. So it felt like a double offense. What we loved about that story is that anyone could be in any of those situations. Anyone could be the aggressor unknowingly. Anyone could be the victim, and anyone could be the Greek chorus who only hears the ending and doesn't know the context that jumps in and makes things worse. It's so funny. You're talking about the Greek chorus. I just feel like you described social media in a nutshell. We are the Greek chorus. You know, uh, yeah, kind of. But at least the Greek chorus is there watching the whole play. The problem is we have a lot of people who are commenting on, but because they don't really get what's going on, they can't weave anything together. A Greek chorus is supposed to be sense-making, not just reactionary. And there's a lot of reacting, but people share links from newsish.net.com. Dot kind of sorta, and take it, 
<laughs> as if it's real. And then someone like me, who's a freaking type A journalist, has to click the link and then look it up and try to source it back. And then I have to comment saying, this isn't real. Why would you dare something that's stupid? And I'm, I'm the guy who's got to go through and sweep it all up. Yeah. So if we had some real Greek choruses who actually could help make sense of what's happening, then that would be awesome. Well, just circling back to social media and pop culture, I feel like there's a week does not go by that we don't have the story of someone said something inflammatory or insensitive on Twitter and then everyone piled on and how that unfolded. Like the example I'm thinking of is um, Nicki Minaj talking about how she did not get that VMA nomination and then Taylor Swift coming in and essentially being very condescending and patronising and then the narrative that unfolds from that. And it made me wonder, should we be weirdly celebrating it when this happens because at least we're talking about it? I think it's good that we're talking about it. It's better talking about it than not. I don't think it's the audience's responsibility to talk about it sensibly or intelligently. I think it's the responsibility of media makers like us who intend to do that, to do that. Like, I don't begrudge people their initial reactions. If what Nicki Minaj or Taylor Swift or Raven Simone says (laughs) bothers you, you're allowed to be bothered. I'm concerned about what happens in the moment after your bother wears off. Mm -hmm. Like, once you come down, what's the next thing you're going to say? What's the next thing you're going to do? Those controversies need, after everyone goes, huh? they need somebody who can go, okay, okay, okay. Now that we've all kind of calmed down, let's take a step back and let's try to do some sense-making yes. of this. What was underneath what Taylor said? What was underneath what Nikki said? And what can we glean from this? What can we learn mm-hmm. from this? My concern is that these conversations become just fodder. They're just disposable. It's like the outrage of the day. Mm -hmm. And people get addicted to the outrage and not addicted to the insight. They're not addicted to the understanding. They're not addicted to the growth that can come from engaging on these issues intelligently, not necessarily in an academic bookish kind of way, but in a way that's real. This is, look, Taylor Swift probably didn't mean any harm. Nicki Minaj probably didn't mean any harm. So if we assume these are two people who probably didn't mean to hurt each other, what can we learn from this? And is there a way to make peace? That's where the conversation seems to be lacking. And maybe it wasn't well-intentioned. I mean, maybe Taylor was just being rude. Like, she's like, maybe Ta- I'm saying, I mean, hey, it's possible. Taylor was just trying to throw a dart and she hit the bullseye. And, and now she's like, I don't no, how could me? I just be little Taylor Swift. I'm j- I'd shake it off. No, 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 Taylor. <laughs> We're not shaking this off. Okay. We ain't shaking this off, Taylor. <laughs> okay. You don't have to wear this one for a second. But that needs that needs unpacking. So we've been talking a lot about reactions on social media, and there've been a lot of reactions to so well spoken. And you wrote this awesome piece highlighting some positive feedback and also some not so positive. Well, you were talking about the uppity episode, and someone wrote. Uppity is racist. KQED should just fire all their reporters, report the real news, stop trying to create news. And on top of that, there were people who were offended by the idea of white privilege. And their kind of knee jerk reaction is to take it as someone saying that they didn't earn what they have and not seeing what white privilege actually means. And and your show is trying to educate people about you know it's not about that so you say that critics are super important in the process of the show how so well let me unpack the first two things and then i'll explain about critics 
Uppity is a term that comes out of the Uncle Remus stories from the late 1800s. This, if you've ever seen Song of the South, you know, zippity doo dah, zip, mm-hmm. that one, that's where those come from. And this idea of a Negro character aspiring to a social station that they did not belong in, you know, that, then those characters were considered uppity. So that has been a term associated with black people for quite some time. White privilege is this idea that there are certain cultural and social benefits that whites enjoy really through no fault or effort of their own today, but that are an offshoot of legacy legalized racism, that that it's kind of the residue, it's the aftermath of that. And the problem with these two commenters is largely that they were just incorrect in their read of how we said what we said. We weren't trying to make news by talking about the word uppity. That goes back to the 1800s. We were just trying to provide context. The critics are an important part of the process because they're part of our society. They're part of a community. And again, if we presume that these critics are not bad people who are just, you know, throwing spitballs from the back of the classroom, then these are people we can't throw away. Barack Obama, when he was running for his first term, gave a speech about race in which he talked about his grandmother, who was a white woman, who he said he loved very much, but occasionally said things about race that made him cringe. So if we throw away those people, we're throwing away loved ones. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't just throw somebody away because of their abhorrent views or even views that make us uncomfortable. Baird Rustin, who was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, once said, we are all one. And if we do not know it, we will learn it the hard way. And he was right. I just don't feel comfortable throwing away people and my core that feels wrong. And for us to not engage with our critics would be equally wrong. Yeah. And progressive people can't change the country just by themselves. Everyone needs to be involved in the process of educating each other and having a conversation. And that's why I love your show so much. Well, and we also can't presume that progressive people have the answers. Right. Because, you know, there's I'm going to steal from W. Kamau Bell. There's that what he calls Texas racism. Uh And then there's that Berkeley racism. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. So we can't just excuse progressive people. Some of the most uncomfortable conversations I've had about race have been had with these progressive people. And I don't talk about my politics, but I have had very terse conversations about race from people on the political left and the political right and people in the middle and people who think they are in a galaxy and a firmament all unto themselves. It's universal. Mm -hmm. It's a human thing. It's the human constant about the way we deal with difference. Mm -hmm. It's just baked into who we are. So I don't put all of the fault or the responsibility on anybody. This is everyone's problem. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. I've, I've, I've heard some of the most offensive things that I've heard, I've heard in Berkeley. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I, the, one, of you, the, one of the first episodes of So Well Spoken, you talked about white space. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, but you interviewed someone who had moved into a building in San Francisco and he thought of San Francisco as sort of being this, like, utopia for, for like, racial acceptance and equality. And then he came and was immediately sort of confronted with a neighbor who said something that made him uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. He was was a medical student at UC San Francisco, and he had just moved into an apartment building in Knob Hill, which is a very upscale part of the city, one of the original wealthy neighborhoods as San Francisco was literally being built. Goes into the building, and this woman, whose race he would not say, holds the elevator open for him, gets on, and she says... You know, are you new in the building? And he says, yeah, I just moved here. It's a black guy. And she said, that's funny. I thought all the neighbors and the landlord got together and said we weren't going to let any more black people in our building. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I guess that's progress for you. Yeah. And he's like, 
I didn't know what to say after that. And mm-hmm. I saw her in the halls and we just didn't really talk. I can hear people going, oh, how could she possibly? Had I pearls, I would clutch them. Lord, help me. <laughs> clutch my pearls. Clutch my pearls. Oh, help me before I faint and, of the vapors. <laughs> I know plenty of other people who are like, yep, because that that's sense. their lived yeah. experience. Right. And they're not surprised. I wasn't surprised. I have had encounters like that. Can you speak about some of the, some of, do you want to speak about some of your, the encounters? How about, had? you want to go back to second grade? <laughs> Let's go back. And a little white girl who was sitting next to me as we were watching a documentary about Martin Luther King. And you're hearing like, you know, Orville Faubus and Bull Connor and George Wallace throwing the N-word around. And, you know, we're not going to let these negroes take away our way. And I remember this little girl turning to me and saying, it's not really a bad word, you know. I was like, What's not a bad word? She said, nigger. My daddy told me it's not really a bad word. I know they say it like that now, but it's not really that bad. And I remember thinking, I'm not old enough to kill you and get away with burying the body. (laughs) But I'm going to think on that. I'm just going to camp that, park that thought for a few years and then come find. And you were both six years old. We were both eight. You plug into one of those Ally McBeal fantasies. You know, when I was a little older, I was singing in a multicultural youth choir, all black and brown children. And I remember our choir director got upset with us because we weren't sounding right or whatever. And she said, I want you all to sound so good that if I had you sing from behind a curtain, the audience would swear they were listening to a group of white children. Hmm. And that seared into me this idea of sounding white as sounding optimum. It's one of the things I had to wrestle with personally as we were getting ready to launch this show. And the show has been really hard for me emotionally and frustrating and, you know, enervating and some days very, very sad because it forces me to unpack things I would rather not talk about. Mm -hmm. But that was always a constant for me. I don't even know if this is this show is healing this for me or just deepening it or, you know, re-expose. I don't really know. I just know the conversation has to be. Had yeah. and we have to learn to wrestle with stuff like this. Well, I, th- I remember that there were really interesting conversations going on within NPR itself about what is the sound of public radio. Mm-hmm. The white voice, yeah. yeah. Yes. One of my students at Berkeley just did a documentary about white voice and this idea that, like, that everybody wants to sound kind of like Ira Glass, where so you tell a story <laughs> and then you've got, like, okay, so we're gonna tell a story and then I'm gonna let him pick up the story from there. So I was in the place where I am and I was doing the thing that I do and then I remember, I, I remember I had this thought. And I'm going to think it for you right now. Hold on. Yeah, I had that thought. And then I just... <laughs> and that Ladies just, and gentlemen, bravo, Mr. Bravo. Right here. <laughs> this idea that there's like one way to sound on NPR, which just, oh, it just makes me crazy. And it just gets under my... Do you think that's sort of like in line with the perception? Like you said, the choir director said to you, I want people to think that or believe that you're white. So there's an association with sort of like goodness or I professionalism. I or... think it's because people forget how smart their grandmother is. Hmm. You know, your grandmother may not be eloquent, but she is wise. Right. She may not be polished, but she has something to say. We forget in this business that people don't have to sound like they're ready for the camera or like they're ready to drop a soundbite to have something worth saying. But because of our roots as an educational medium and as a very erudite and intellectual and worldly wise medium that was built for kind of the cognoscenti of the radio world, we forget that wisdom takes many, many forms. Sometimes it sounds like the bum 
on a corner in East Oakland. Oh, there were some, some wise bums on the corners ex- in East Oakland. Exactly, because they, they can tell you what not to do. All of the all of the academic books about sort of like systematic racism and Please. They, and, and oppression, they told me. Right. But then there are also <laughs> there's also wisdom in the Ozark Mountains. Mm-hmm. There's wisdom in East Harlem. There's wisdom in South L.A. There's wisdom on 8 Mile in Detroit. There's wisdom in Overtown in Miami. There is wisdom in the Hamptons. There is wisdom in the penthouse and the outhouse and everywhere in between. And if we are not reflecting that, it's our fault. We who have the microphone are responsible for pointing it in all the right directions. And that sense of NPR voice means we've given up on the search. It's a sign of laziness. And I cannot abide laziness. Okay, so I we were talking about personal experiences in Berkeley. So in Berkeley, one of the most offensive things that happened to me when I was pregnant, my husband and I were standing in a cafe. This woman walks up to me. She compliments me on being pregnant, asks me all the regular questions, and then she says to me, do you have a supportive father? It took me a minute to realize that she wasn't talking about my father right. or whether or not there was a a, a man in, in my life to help me raise this child. Excuse me, darling, where is your baby daddy? Uh, that was four years ago, and to this day I always wonder like what I would have said if I had a moment to react. I can think of a few things you would have said. <laughs> some of them would have been funny and some of them would have been hilarious. So for people who are caught up in situations like that, what advice would you give them? Breathe. Just breathe. It may not be worth it. It may not be worth it to get upset. It may not be worth it. It may be worth it to just understand this person is speaking from the limit of their knowledge. They're speaking from the best they have to offer at this moment. I could try to say to them, you know what, ma'am, I'm reading something into the implication of what you're saying that doesn't make me comfortable and give them a chance to get it right. Otherwise, you know, giraffes and turtles occupy the same space. They just eat on the level of their vision. You might Mm -hmm. be high up and she might be low down, but you share the same space and you're supposed to breathe. It's okay. It ain't personal. Move on with your life. Or say something real solid and have a great story to tell later. Either way. (laughs) So we write out every episode with a song of our guest's choice. I'm assuming yours is Janet, Burn It Up, unless you have a different one. Oh, God. You know what? Um, I've been listening to Janet. I've been listening to Jill Scott's latest album. I've been listening to D'Angelo's latest album, which are all just like, oh, that's just that's. You know what? We need more love in the world. So let's end with D'Angelo's. It's called um, Another Life. All right. I think it's one of the last tracks on his album. That's just like, let's put down all this racial hatred and let's just let's just love one another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you get one thing from this episode, it's let's just love one another. Let's just. Well, no, 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 no. It's let's just. Love one another. Ooh. Yes. Yes. I'm sweating over here. Okay. <laughs> so that's our show for this week. We would be remiss not to thank a few people. Our theme music, which you heard at the beginning of the episode, is by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. She's awesome. You should check her out. She's in a band called Bouquet. Thanks also to Rob Spate, who was behind the glass for this episode. And David Marcus, our podcast daddy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, if you haven't yet, please check us out on iTunes and rate us and review us. Because it makes us happy. What other reason do you need? Catch us next Thursday. Until then, find us on social media at Kikiridipop. Bye. Bye now. Bye.